everybody, I'm Mike Levy and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. This time I'm in Tempe, Arizona, where I'm visiting Pivot Cycles and speaking to Pivot's founder, Chris Gokalis. I am also here to see some new bicycles that we can't talk about yet. Not yet. Not yet. Soon though. Um, but we've got a lot of stuff to cover on this podcast, Chris, because you've done some pretty cool stuff over the years. We're going to cover uh, starting multiple businesses. We're going to talk about Titus. We're going to get into Pivot. We're going to get into Corona. We're going to get into <laughs> testing bikes, all sorts of stuff. All right. Um, Chris, you you have started multiple businesses. You've made some some pretty cool stuff, but let's go way back. Did you ever work in a bike shop like a lot of industry folks? Oh, yeah. I started in a bike shop. I uh, I was the Grom that hung out at the local bike shop at uh, nine years old. I was I was hanging out at the bike shop being uh, annoying and right. doing taking out the trash. Crushing for, boxes? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I did much box crushing, but I did take out the trash for stickers. So um locally we had a bike maintenance class that you could take through the like the park district mm -hmm. and our local bike shop actually put that class on uh my mom saw that and uh wanted to sign me up for it but it was really for adults <laughs> so she had to get like special permission and so i took that class uh it, it was really meant to be a one and done like dad learns how to fix the flat for his kids bikes and lube the chains and whatnot but uh i took it every time they offered it. And so they would start with the, the parents and then they'd bring the mechanics would bring me in the back. And eventually I was tearing apart three speed hubs and yeah and whatnot. And they just couldn't get rid of me. So eventually I worked there and then moved on to another shop and so on. And yeah, basically since I could, uh, probably 13 or 14, I had jobs in in bike shops. Yeah. Yeah. Was that in Phoenix or no, that, that was in the Chicagoland area. Palatine, Illinois is where I'm from. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay. Okay. Um, I did some research for this and I found out you've got a long history of making stuff, Chris. You're a bit of a maker, a do it yourself. -er. Yeah. Uh, you've made skateboards, snowboards. You made a freaking hydroplane. I did. Tell me about this hydroplane. Uh, I was in the woods program in, in school, like through, through middle school, through high school. And, uh, by my sophomore year, I had uh, kind of almost, I guess, pointed out like there wasn't much more to do with the equipment and stuff. So they actually had like an independent study woods program. So I had keys to the shop and I just had to come up with a, a project to finish by my senior year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I found this this hydroplane. Did you do any boat stuff before this? No, no. <laughs> I just thought it was fucking cool. So freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, it's... It, so yeah, I, I, uh, I embarked on that and, and did that. And did that involve like laying up fiberglass and it doing did. that kind of uh, stuff? So it was a lot of, uh, how to get wood to bend more than it was meant to. And how many days you would like start to bend it and get it to kind of settle in and, yeah. and, and get the whole thing built. Um, yeah, it was sourcing marine screws that both wouldn't rust and couldn't back out of the wood, and and then yeah, gel coating and the whole shebang. And I really uh, did not enjoy the sanding finishing end of things. And I finished the boat. The boat was was yeah. done, and then I got bored with it and didn't finish painting it and just had it hanging out for a while. And my neighbors had boats and they were really into it, and so I, I gave it to one of the neighbor kids and they finished painting it up and. Um, 
man, even after I graduated uh, college, they still they were they were still running that thing. So it was. Did you get where, a good grade? Oh yeah, yeah. That wasn't uh, yeah. The, the the thing was dialed. It was it was a nice boat. I bet it was. So. <laughs> Tell me about making snowboards. What was involved with that? Um, well, I. I saw a picture of the first Burton snowboard, like we're talking early 80s, 83, 84. Um, And it was, you know, more like a plank with a couple like metal fins sticking through it. And then uh, rubber bindings, almost like are on a um, uh, water skis. And, um, And actually the bike shop I worked in, I helped bring in snowboards and I helped them set up a skateboard shop in the shop. So we were kind of diversifying what we were selling. BMX was yeah. going well, but maybe kind of starting to fall off a little bit and everybody was into these other sports as well. So, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't actually have the money at first to buy a snowboard and there was, uh, there was unused water ski jigs in our wood shop. And yes. so I put two of them together and bondoed it all in and, Basically, the same way we were building skateboard decks, uh, did the same thing on a much bigger scale and uh, then laminated the top and bottom and uh, made my own metal brackets to hold the the bindings. Yeah. Kind of loosely in quotes because it was a rubber strap across your heel. Yeah. I'm thinking power straps. Remember power straps? Yeah. Yeah. Power straps are awesome. They they should have come out with the power strap pro. (laughs) We could be running those today. We could be, but we're not. <laughs> but we're not. <laughs> Chris, where do you where do you think this do it yourself or attitude, make your own thing comes from? Was your dad like that? My dad was not like that. I think it's uh my dad was the unscrew the pipes that are leaking underneath the sink and then every water going everywhere and that sounds uh, like me. Uh, <laughs> and and me looking at him while he's doing that and going, I don't know if you're, it doesn't look like you're doing that right, dad, and him kind of moving out of the way. Your dad and, showed you what not to do. Yeah, my dad showed me what not to do. So, like, by the time I, I I was nine or ten, I was fixing things like he'd be like, come over here, fix this. And, yeah. Um, and I had neighbors that were really mechanical and auto mechanics and stuff, and I'd just hang out at their house and hand them the tools. And You've just, just always been getting your hands dirty. Just, yeah, just loving it. So. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, RC, I read an interview with RC, and he calls you the millimeter man because you're <laughs> you're so exacting. And then I I looked at some more stuff, and you've got a you've got a background in both accounting and engineering, which are like the pretty like yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I uh, I started I had uh, three and a half, almost four years of uh, electrical engineering, and then. Oh, I didn't know that. Electrical engineering. Yeah, I decided I didn't like electrical engineering. I uh, I didn't really know what the different types like that mechanical engineering even existed. And so uh, I was taking business classes and I really just wanted out out of school. By this point, I was building frames and pretty busy with other stuff. And uh, yeah, accounting was business was relatively easy accounting i enjoyed i just flipped over to the business school and i think that says a lot wound up getting into accounting i enjoyed it i I did (laughs) yeah where others struggled i seemed to yeah just kind of get it so it it, uh it was it was a quick way out of school but also turned out to be a awesome path because some of the people i met at asu's accounting program really supported me and on the bike side of things and what we were doing there yeah i was going to say your your education 
both like your hands-on education growing up, but also that traditional schooling education, the accounting and the engineering, I imagine it came in handy in later years when you were starting multiple businesses and yeah, doing it's, all uh, it, it's interesting because if you, if you don't do the accounting end of things right, those businesses aren't going to last right. very long. And you got to have both sides of it, don't you? you? You do. You can't just make cool shit. It also has to like survive and make sense and, you know, you have to be able to sell it. That's the hope anyway. Yeah. That is the hope, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a picture here that I want to show you, Chris. Oh, God. Yeah. This is, this is a young, good-looking man here. He is buff, I have to say. Let me just turn my computer a little bit here. What do you think of when you see, when you see this? <laughs> How old were you in this photo? Uh, I would have been 19, 20, right? Yeah. Yeah. 19 and or 20. You are standing there with a steel mountain bike yeah, that you made yourself. Yeah, that was the first frame I've ever welded. Yeah, so. what year was this? 1988. 1988. Tell me tell me about how that happened. Why did you make your make a bicycle? Well, I came out here uh, f from Illinois. I raced BMX uh, all through high school. Um, I used to come out here for the Winter Nationals to Arizona. And uh, I had a friend that was on our race team that moved out here. And so I'd visit him uh, a couple summers. I came out and uh, the racing was so strong out here. I could race every night of the week. And that was solely the decision behind picking Arizona State was you, that I could race every night of the week. You look like a crusher in this photo. Yeah. <laughs> I would not half wheel this, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, so I actually... Uh, Got my pro license my senior year in high school. Came out here was a, a crappy A pro, and uh, yeah, no, I came out here and wanted to race BMX professionally. There was a lot of fast guys out here. I I taught uh, clinics at the at the local track, which was the ABA's home track, and uh, um, but I worked uh, basically going to ASU. And partially funding that myself, uh, I had a, I had a, actually a track scholarship to University of Illinois, and I turned for what it, sport? Uh, for track, uh, I, I ran running two hundred, four hundred meter. Yeah, okay. um, and uh, and yeah, my parents were not pleased that I turned that down uh, to come to a place where I could race every night of the week, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So yeah, priorities, Chris. Priorities. Priorities are important. I I, uh, I keep that in mind with my kids right now as well, yeah. of why they want to do go to a certain school or be a certain place, and it's and those things are important. Um, what drives you is super important. So it's uh, I came out here based on that, but I didn't really have the cash to do that, and had to get a job pretty quickly. So. Wound up working at a bike store here and then leaving that store and uh, becoming a manager of another store. Um, and during that time, though, when I first came out here, I was the BMX Grom. And in Illinois, there really wasn't such thing as a mountain bike. We'd seen a mountain bike, but yeah. we kind of made fun of mountain bikes. Funny-looking really, things. Funny-looking eh? things. Uh, a kid brought a Schwinn High Sierra out to the area, area where we had our dirt jumps, and we had this big double jump that you could – park a Volkswagen in between. And I'm like, yeah. Hey, can I try that? And I jumped it and, and the fork broke. And I was like, here's, here's your bike, dude. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
And uh, that was my impression of mountain bikes. And everybody at the shop here was like super into mountain bikes. It was booming here. Um, they took me on rides. I just fell in love with it. I pretty, what, why did you fall in love with it? I don't know. Um, I just, it was just really cool. I, I, I don't know. I just connected with it at a, yeah. at a level that, even with BMX, I, I never really, I, I was in love with BMX. Obviously I made life decisions based on it, yeah. but this was just another level. Like I really got into it, but I was not always the smoothest BMX racer. And back to the early eighties, I was breaking everything, hub flanges, crank arms, bottom bracket spindles. And by the mid eighties, like parts had progressed so quickly that that stuff was not an issue anymore. And, and then get on my first mountain bike and shit's falling off of it, you know, from day one, it's just yeah. nothing is holding up. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started like trying to find parts, put pieces of BMX parts onto mountain bikes, adapt things. Um, and yeah, started designing like a bottom bracket and then crank set and, other things and started making things literally while I was living in the dorm room at ASU, I was contracting with machine shops and making bottom brackets and, and had a little company called snake cycles. I would spray paint cardboard boxes blue and cut out the foam and put my bottom brackets in them and take them around to shops and sell them. And just that's, that's how I started. Did you have back then were you like, I'm going to work in the bike industry. I'm going to make a bike company. Or was it like, I'm just going to make some parts and sell them and kind of see where it goes? Yeah. Once I, I had something, I'm like, this is really cool. This is way better than what's out there. And so, yeah, you're, you're 20, 20 years old, 19 years old. You're just kind of, yeah. you don't have any money. You got to pay the guy at the machine shop. He wants you to buy X amount minimum. And you're like, okay, well, I only need two for my bikes. And yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I better sell the rest. I better sell the rest. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, that's really how it started. It wasn't like, oh, I want to be in the bike industry. I want to have a bike company at the beginning. It, it was just, this is my sport and this is what I want to do. And, and when something doesn't work the way I want it to, I, I want to make it better. And, and, uh, and yeah, we had a whole group of guys that were, that's really almost the, bike shop owners and reps and the whole bike industry in Phoenix that, that exists today, I'd say 90% of them now, like we all worked in the same shop together. It was wow. like the biggest shop in, in the Phoenix area. And somehow or another, we were, we were there at the beginning. And so it was, it, it, it was pretty cool to be a part of that. You've got that talent frame. I'll, I'll put a photo of this bike in the article, but you've got that talent frame here, which is pretty special to have. Yeah. It is a cool looking thing with a little tiny top tube, elevated stays. Um, you, did you teach yourself how to weld to make that? How did um, that come about? One of the other guys in that photo, Alan Vaughn, uh, he, he was actually building those frames and he came into the shop I was managing. Um, and just a really weird looking bike. And I rode it around the parking lot and it was super flexy and, head angle even for the time was way too steep yeah um and the bike wasn't straight like you couldn't wheelie on it it would pull one you way were demanding even back then yeah and <laughs> bike's uh, got to be straight and i and i'm like and i was i was i'm like did you build this yourself and i was pretty excited about the whole thing and he, he said yeah i've got a little shop in my backyard and 
Um, uh, and by this time, I, I, I was actually a Richard Cunningham Mantis super fan, and I yeah. had I had pictures of the Nishiki alien up on my wall in the dorm room, and I, I had been sketching elevated chainstay bikes, and um, and it was like yearning to figure out how to how to build something and uh um and he's like yeah yeah i I know how to braise and i built this myself and i'm I'm like well i could do some designs and and help you with geometry you know i I know a lot about bikes and if you would teach me how to braise so we we loosely became partners and Mm -hmm. i'd started going over to his house in the evenings and we built the bikes and then yeah 1988 or 89 um we actually, I took one over, Alan and I took one over to Mountain Bike Action. And uh, um, I think Zap was there back yeah. in the day. And we uh, we dropped it off with them. And then we were in this article, uh, Bikes of the Future. And it had uh, two or three of, of different Mantis models, the Nishiki Alien, our Sun Eagle Bicycle Works Talon. And there was a brand called Gecko and some other lots of other things yeah and, um but there was five or six maybe seven different bikes in the bikes of the future dude that must so. have been so surreal for you to like open a magazine and see those things in there yeah but what was funny uh, about it was you as as a teenager what's important to you and what reality should be like i didn't <laughs> want to give up my bike which was the straightest best like everything about it was dialed yeah and Alan still had that his original one and that was kind of a piece of shit and we straightened it and got it right but we just we didn't have a lot of bikes and I didn't want to leave my bike so yeah. we left his bike with mountain bike action and they oh. were incredibly kind to us because it was in <laughs> such a poor handling bike and we had changed wall thicknesses the amount of changes we made among the first three or four bikes why we would leave him the that, that zap one. the first one and uh, he basically called it a great bike for the desert. <laughs> Thanks, <Al. laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He could have just grenaded us. Yeah. And he should have grenaded us yeah. probably. But uh, yeah, no, it, it was, yeah, reading it, I was like, eh, okay, he's being kind. But mm. uh, um, yeah, making that kind of decision, like not to give the magazine the best one was uh, looking back at it. I'm like, what was I, what was I thinking? Yeah. Yeah. No so, doubt. What what was it about those bikes that set them apart at the time? Um, shifting was incredibly bad. I mean, we were triple front chain rings. Um, I don't even remember if like biopace was happening at that point, but um, you know, front derailleurs didn't work. Chain ring technology sucked. They were flat. Um, yeah, yeah, and so chain suck was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. So on the bikes that had u-brakes underneath there was something called a shark tooth that hung off to hopefully keep the chain from sucking up from the bottom yeah. and we had shark fins that we put would put on the chain stays on the top that had a little fin to keep it get, from getting sucked in by the tire because the chain would just stick to the chain ring and just get pulled one way or another and there was no clutches or anything obviously so chain management was a big issue and so elevated chain stays kind of took all the stuff where the chain would get caught yeah. out of the equation um of course at that point then it would just fall off but <laughs> uh better than like destroying your frame or bending a chain ring which was what typically would happen mm-hmm. um and then 
yeah, it it looked cool. Ch- short chain stays, really short chain stays. Well, so yeah. just for reference, how short is really short in whatever year this was? I don't even remember because we were all in inches back then. Yeah. And uh, but the actual di- diameter of what a twenty six inch wheel is, like getting that within millimeters of the bottom bracket shell. Yeah. You know, and there, you you could do that when the chain stays weren't in the way when they were elevated. And, mm-hmm. um, so we didn't go that short. I mean, there was some there was some fishers that came out shortly after that, and there was a couple of other brands that that was their 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 whole shtick was like they curved their C tubes around the the tire and just moved that thing. And yeah, they were almost like unicycles. You you. Could wheelie machines. They were wheelie machines. Yeah. Some of them had great balance points. Some of them would just lube out instantly. Those fishers were just god-awful when they yeah. made them that, that short. But Today's episode of the Pink Bike Podcast is brought to you by Trail Forks, and I am not even joking about that. It's 11 p.m. right now, and I would literally still be out in the forest if Casimir had made me download this app about a year ago. What's that? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll say that too. Yeah, yeah. I'm also supposed to say that Trail Forks is not responsible for getting your lost ass out of the woods. You got to call the appropriate people for that kind of help. But it sure is handy for when you think you're supposed to turn left, but you most definitely need to turn right. And there's over 530,000 trails on it from pretty much everywhere. Can you imagine how big your paper map would have to be to have all those trails on it? Huge! The best part? The free version of Trail Forks gives you a local map of your area, so you don't even need to pay anything. What's that? Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll say that too. I'm also supposed to say that you can buy the pro version to unlock all the features for $2.49 a month when you combine it with an Outside Plus membership. Who was making good bikes back then? Like, were you, was there, was there a brand that you looked at and were like, whoa. Those are cool. Yeah, I mean, my first uh, my first mountain bike was a Nishiki because it's what we carried at the shop. They had a good employee purchase program. It's what I could afford. I broke the frame on the second ride. <sighs> um, didn't last long. Was that an Alien? No, uh, it was before the Alien. It was called a Nishiki Pinnacle, and it was like prestige tubing, real small, almost road diameter, and I rippled the down tube uh, on a, from riding something like coming yeah. down National Trail. and. Uh, I was still living in the dorms. It was like community showers. So I, I, I would roll my bike in and to the shower with me and wash my bike in the showers. And yeah, I was, you know, lovingly washing my bike. Simpler times, um, Chris. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, felt that big ripple underneath the down tube on its second ride. It was, it was <sighs> super crushing. But uh, got a fat chance frame after that. Um, I, I, I was in... You know, all through the life of Fat Chance, I was I was a huge Fat Chance fan. The first, what type, color was it? Did was it like purple? It, and... That one was white. Okay. And and then when the Yo Eddie came out, I had a metallic blue one. And, yeah. Uh, my wife, when when we when she wasn't my wife yet, I talked her into getting. Uh, she got a Fat Chance Wicked. So I had an original Fat Chance. She had a Wicked, which was a little steeper head angle, and hers was like a metallic maroon color. And then my first Yo Eddie was a metallic blue color with like yellow decals and stuff. And yeah. Um. Yeah, I just love that bike. And then the first Tituses we built, geometry-wise, were very much patterned off of that Yoeti. Yeah. How, how many Talons did you sell, and what happened to the company? Um, 
Well, I don't know how many we we sold. I, I it, it might be north of ten. <laughs> <laughs> But I think 14 would be a stretch. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, Alan continued to to do his thing. At some point, I didn't I didn't want it to be an elevated chain stay anymore. I wanted to do some different things with it, and he wanted it to be continue to be elevated chain stay. So I stopped going over to his house. Yeah. And that that was that. And they they built bikes for a couple more years. Um, Back then, too, I was doing, uh, I had been hired by Gore to do development of uh, their Gore Tex coded cable systems. How did that come about? Uh, from the bike store. Yeah, I met some Gore people because they're based out of Flagstaff, and the Gore Tex cable idea came uh, from that division of Gore Tex. And I, I met at a bike race. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, uh, I was actually getting paid to test these and provide feedback on the parts. And Alan's day job was working at an industrial coatings place. And I, I showed him what I was doing and, um, and he was like, Oh, you know, you don't, you don't need to go that complex and stuff. And he wound up buying, uh, just bare cables from quality bike, whatever their house brand was and, uh, taking them to work and, and doing black, uh, uh, not silicone, but, uh, black coating on it. So mm. he was, that was the first ever black coated cables. And and then he was selling them to QBP. They were called Talon Slick Whips. I remember those. Yeah. I remember that name. So I think that, I mean, aside wow. from his normal day job, that was actually a, a big thing for him. And, and yeah, he sold a lot of Talon Slick Whips over the years. And then eventually everybody had coated Teflon coated cables and, yeah. black coated cables and that's that's kind of where we're at today to this day of some kind of slick coating on cables interesting yeah, yeah yeah okay so after you decide you didn't want to make those those bikes anymore did you go right to titus did you start titus after that or was there some years yeah so in i had that bike um i was riding it um but i was just still a super fan of bikes so that's i actually got my yo eddie i think after that I, I built that first that first frame and then um and then i actually bought a yeti right about that time too so yeti, which yeti uh arc? The, yeah the original arc um they had just gone from a bmx headset size to the first 1.5 and uh, I had that thing on order for, I don't know, eight months or something before that first yeah. 1.5 head tube Yeti arrived. Did it last more than two days? The fork didn't. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> I buckled the fork at the cantilever studs, uh, I believe, first ride. And I was pissed. And I think it was John Parker, who was the original founder mm -hmm. of Yeti. And back then, Yeti was small. So, like, getting him on the phone was common. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he did not, was not willing to warranty that, that fork for me. And then it turned out like every Yeti fork was, th that was when the forks were the big round tubes. Yeah. Um, and I think that was their first experiment. I, they, what the, was knowing the what I they know, looked, they looked burly, but, yeah, but I think thin? they were like, oh, 35 wall. I think oh, they were just too, too thin. And then the yeah. heat from the cantilever studs, I mean, they'd literally just buckled off a drop it was oh so if the heat from welding the cantilever studs onto the legs yeah wrecked them basically yeah yeah interesting so, um 
eventually when like answer took over making i think they were called a tracks or something yep. whatever the forks were um i think they got the wall thickness and all that stuff resolved because those were pretty good forks but bond traegers were the like awesome aftermarket fork so um so my my yeti got a a, a bond trigger fork and then rock shock the first ever rock shocks um i was very proud that i got like the first rock shocks in the state what year did you get the rs1 uh that probably would have been 1988 or 89 when they first the first rs1 came out and for and then my buddy uh that managed another one of our stores got at the same time uh ordered the first manitou fork so he had that on his uh richie p21 beautiful and uh yes and and then i was rocking the rock shocks on my yeti did you know right away about suspend like suspension forks were you like oh yeah yeah this is this is it yeah i was all in yeah i thought it was the coolest thing yeah ever was so. it reliable it was i don't remember ever having a problem with that fork i mean it made it through the life of the bike and um and actually the the whole rock shocks thing became a, a a big reason why why titus started it was it was uh quite interesting because rock shocks was actually being manufactured by diacomp usa which is cane creek today in north carolina and the guy uh separately the guy who invented the threaded threadless headset mm -hmm. had sold that patent to diacomp usa and he had a suspension bike design and i was doing i did all the prototypes for that suspension bike design and so i met all the people from the key people from cane creek yeah diacomp usa rock shocks and uh, we were able to work with them on a little tiny rear shock that we used on those first prototypes because of that relationship with the headset and everything. And On the first Titus prototypes? Uh, actually, back up a little bit. Um, I met John Rader, the guy who invented the threadless headset, at a bike race. He, had these, he was a big deal in the bike industry because, I mean, we went from goosenecks to threaded headsets like in one year. There's Pretty probably, important change. There's probably not anything else in the bike industry that you could point to that made that rapid a change that quickly i mean we went from 100 percent goosenecks to like 85 percent threadless in one model year everybody just agreed everybody that just doesn't agreed. happen anymore yeah <laughs> um and so that was a big deal so he was he he was a he was a big shot in the bike industry um but he himself is not in the bike industry uh he's just a racer tinker yeah um and he's from Dallas, Texas. So I don't even know what bike race. It wasn't an Arizona bike race that I met him at, but we were somewhere. Um, probably a cactus cup or something. Cactus cup. Um, that makes me think of John Tomac. It makes me think of yeah. those, those double jobs. Bob Roll. Bob Roll. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, so that being here, we were always involved in racing at that race. But uh, so, yeah, he had this uh, suspension bike design. He was trying to have a university uh, help him build them. It wasn't mm -hmm. working out by this time. Um, I had started building frames that would eventually become Titus. And, um, and I agreed to do some prototypes for him and he shopped it to Univega. Um, and Univega was a, a, a good, yeah, solid name at that time and, uh, shopped it to GT and Univega wound up buying it. And I was 
senior at ASU, and I got a purchase order from Univega for 175 titanium full suspension bikes. <laughs> so wait, let's go back to that time. When you got that purchase order, was that was that good news or was that like oh shit news? It was just it was good oh shit news because I had no expectation of that. I in fact I had that was my hobby and yeah. I was interviewing with accounting firms. It was kind of moving on to the next step of your professional life. Yeah, um, as your parents tell you you should do, right? And, um, and it was, yeah, it was crazy. It was just all of a sudden this PO shows up. It was taking us, I don't know, six, eight weeks to build one prototype for them. And so to get a purchase order for 175 and then me calling them and being like, what the hell, the, the brand manager um, at Univega at the time was like, yeah, here's our plan. You know, we, we want to have uh, a high-end U.S. titanium manufacturer, you, uh, build these the titanium version and then we want to have uh, Teasdale build the high end steel version. And then uh, we're going to, and then we're going to have production versions in Asia. And so, yeah, that's what we're doing. And uh, I had a accounting professor. He was the director of the accounting program at ASU and uh, he was a cyclist and I, I kind of presented him with my dilemma and, uh, and he, he told me, he's like, look, you can always be an accountant. You should, you should do this. Hell yeah. And, uh, so he pushed me to do it and he, and he was writing a new accounting textbook and he said, I don't actually need the money from this textbook. And he, he gave us the money from his textbook. investor. He, he invested, he didn't actually want a piece of the company. He never allowed me to give him a bike. He always bought his bikes. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, his name's Hal Renault. He's not with us anymore, but was really instrumental in helping get Titus going. Yeah. It's, you know, so many people have stories like that. Like they've been around for a long time. They've done a lot of things, but if you go back far enough, a lot of times there's like one or two moments or one or two people that are the key people or the key moments. Absolutely. That, Everybody's got a teacher or something right? and all along your life. There's usually key things that happen that you're like, if I didn't have this person or this thing happen, everything would have been different. You'd be an accountant right now. I could be. I kind of still am, but. Yeah, I think you kind of are actually. <laughs> um, so you scaled up. Is You, you hired people? You yeah, started so, a company? Um, what happened? Uh, Titus actually started, out when I, again, managing the same bike store, another guy came in. Uh, his wife was shopping next door. He saw a magazine with a Merlin titanium uh, on the cover. It was Bicycling Magazine or something, and yeah. um, or Bicycle Guide, one of those, and came in with it and and was and had just been literally reading the article while his wife was shopping, and and then came into the bike store next door, and um, and he, he's he's like, do you know anything about this brand? And I'm like, yeah, my you know my my buddy has like Merlin number twelve and. Um, and yeah, titanium's awesome. And, and he's like, well, all the stuff they're saying in here about it, you know, being so difficult and everything, he's like, that's all bullshit. I, I, I weld titanium for a living. I know everything about titanium and pretty cocky about it. And I'm like, well, I build bike frames. So like, that's really cool. And, and he did know everything about welding titanium. Sure, sure shit. And, and so we, um, we started working on some stuff together and, and he wasn't a cyclist 
at all. Just read that article and was like, this is a joke. I could do this all day long in my sleep. And, and, uh, and then we started doing it in the garage and building bikes and come on, Chris, that's a crazy story. Yeah. The guy, the guy he's in the store next to the shop you work at yeah. titanium welder reads a story, comes over, talks to you. You need a titanium welder to yeah. make a hundred and something frames. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, we hadn't start. I hadn't uh, together. We started doing the prototypes okay. after that is when I met John. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, uh, this was just like, let's do some cool titanium stuff. So we made some bar ends because Anza had titanium bar ends. Yeah. So we could make cooler that. titanium bar ends. And then we did some handlebar stems. Um, there was a guy in town here, uh, nine house that was building chromoly stems and they were cool stems. Everybody had them. Like, let's do it out of titanium. And, everything uh, is better out of titanium. Everything's <laughs> better out of titanium. It isn't, but it, <laughs> yeah. we thought it was for a while. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so we just started with that, and then because he could TIG weld, uh, our actual first frame was a steel frame, and then the first titanium frame couldn't really afford the tubing and stuff, so built it, wound up selling it. I didn't actually get to ride the first titanium bike we built, and yeah. then I got to ride the second one. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that after that, I'm racing our titanium frame that we built, and that's when I met john at a race and uh we were just starting to build bikes for friends and things and had the name titus um once i got the purchase order is when we got serious because it's like okay hal's going to give us this money and my business partner at the time mark um his boss he was at an aerospace firm and his boss also thought this idea was kind of cool and put in an equal amount of money. So we had $30,000, 15,000 from each of them. That's like $3 million today. <laughs> I'm not that old, but, um, but it was enough, honestly, for us to actually rent a building, yeah, uh, sign a lease, buy uh, a manual lathe and a manual mill and hire some of the swing shift welders uh, from the aerospace company to, to come in when they finished their night shift and, and weld some bikes for us. And we, we got it going and we, we built those bikes for Univega and then we built bikes for Diamondback and for, uh, Le Monde and Dean and lots of companies. I had a Le Monde. I had a Le Monde Zurich. Did it, you was have- a, it was a steel 853 bike way back then, but so we did all the team frames for the uh, Le Mans Mercury team because okay. they all needed to be custom. And that was the way we designed our fixtures and everything. We could do custom bikes. That was kind of my thing that I'd be able to do custom bikes at the speed and price that a, a Merlin or a Lightspeed could do production yeah. titanium frame. So all the tooling and everything was designed to be like quickly set up and it'll, it really enabled us to do a lot of OEM stuff as well because we could do highly customizable stuff. Yeah. You, you were obviously like in the right place at the right time meeting the right people yeah. and you were clearly a go-getter still are. Um, but man, like all these pieces coming together, like it sounds like it was supposed to happen also. It does, you know? Yeah. It's funny how that works. Yeah. I mean, I tried at the time and I, still do try to be at all the shows, all the places, all the things yeah. that you need to put yourself forward and be present to be there. And, 
and let the opportunities happen when you're really into it. That's pretty, pretty easy. To, it, just, it just happens. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yesterday we were walking around and you showed me a bunch of Titus spikes that you still have, including a hardtail frame and the uh, seat stay piece. You told me a neat story about how you actually, you were the only one who could make those. Yeah, we we had a wishbone design that kind of uh, it, it went from oval in one direction to flat ninety degrees in the other direction, and um, and so it wasn't just that we could smash a titanium tube oval; it kind of had to go in both directions and have kind of square corners. And the material manufacturer that we had for a while, um, if you took that too far, it would it would split the titanium and. So we made this kind of fixture and it was on a hand, mm-hmm. almost like a Harbor, Harbor Freight shitty press. Um, and I would just very carefully form it. And I had some rubber pieces that I put inside, but I would hand, I, I would fit every one of those up for, for the welders. So it was, I, I did most of the coping for all of the, all the tubes. Not even joking. What I used to say as we got bigger and stuff and somebody would say, I can't do that or I can't do that. It's like, Dude, I've ever done every job in the shop. So yeah, yeah, you can do this. And by the time we get to the end of this podcast, we'll have gone through like like 13 of your careers that you've squeezed well, into yeah, this lifetime. Just a few, but <laughs> yeah. I I want to say a name and I want you to tell me what comes to mind. I might mispronounce it. Horst Leitner. Yeah. Horst is amazing. Isn't he? Yeah. How I mean, important the bike in, was the, he? The bike industry might not be where it is today or, or suspension might be something completely different. I mean, mm-hmm. why still, for people who don't know who he is and what he, what he did, why are you telling me this? The why horse link, important? which is now, uh, was then called the FSR link, which is what we all refer to as a four bar, um, where there's a pivot down in front of the dropout. Um, and I would say, uh, 90% of the European bikes are horse link bikes. Um, and uh, a good portion of bikes in the U.S. are horse link bikes as well. And all of our early uh, Titus named branded suspension bikes uh, were all horse link four bar bikes. And uh, yeah, I uh, g- it goes back to the Univega thing. So Univega was really trying to go after to match Specialized because Specialized at the time had this whole innovator die. They had these hearses that they would drive. And Univega was really more of a probably go to Asia, pick an open model frame, paint it a certain color. And, but the mountain bike was world was changing rapidly and you couldn't be that and really survive. I mean, Schwinn didn't survive. Many companies didn't survive. And Univega was really kind of going the way of Schwinn. And so they hired this guy to be a product guy, to turn them around. And he got frustrated because even though they said they wanted to do that, the internals within the company weren't going to allow them to be different than what they were they weren't going to change the direction of that ship Mm -hmm. so he left about midway through the project when we were building these frames for him and he's like sorry chris i'm leaving um i'm going to become production manager at amp research he's like if you come out to california just check it out it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. and so the mongoose amplifier was out by then which is the first horse link bike and so I went and visited him pretty quickly and he, and I came back, um, this was 1990, I think, um, uh, maybe 91. 
And I came back with a, an amp rear triangle. He gave me one to take back, and uh, and I and then we, and we immediately built our first Titus full suspension bike with an amp rear end on it. How big were those chainstays? How what was the diameter of those chainstays? Uh, they were then? bigger <laughs> than a number two pencil. I was just um, going to say, but they were uh, about maybe the size of a sharpie. Yeah. <laughs> to, to put nice it in lateral forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, the pivots were really small. The yeah. rear triangle wasn't straight. It, it was funny because being kind of the way I am and just seeing what what we wanted to do, we made some fixtures and some things to add some, uh, to one, to weld the, fr- the rear triangle straight, but two, to add some reinforcements in some key places. And so, like, we want to do this horse, but we want it built this way. So I, I drove over there with the fixtures and everything. Um, and basically sat down with him to tell him what I, what I wanted. And he got so incredibly pissed off. Like stepping on his toes kind of thing. Yeah. He said, you know, we're, we're not trying to build 500 bikes. We're trying to build 5,000 and being a snotty kid. I said, then you should try and make them straight, which (laughs) really pissed him off. (laughs) That's but, fair though. That's fair. Um, and I, for, I actually forget the name of the, of the guy who'd come over from Univega. Um, but he, he and horse daughter kind of smoothed things out yeah. and yeah, we'll you just leave the fixtures. We'll get them to come around. And, and they did, they, they, they built the rear triangles for us. And, um, we started using those and then we we started making up other updates to them and started working with fox on the first alp yeah. shock when that came along in maybe 93 um but just continual updates on what we wanted to do there and uh signed a a licensing agreement with horst and it was for two dollars a bike for any patent that he came up with in the bicycle industry Two bucks a bike. Two bucks a bike. Not it bad. Pretty, it was a pretty good deal. Yeah. And uh, amazingly, he did that over the years with a, a good handful of companies. And in uh, uh, obviously specialized being the big one. And then it was a, quite a surprise when he sold the, the horse link design to specialized. And then specialized started kind of. Yeah. Trying to shut everybody down from, from using it. But I had this patent till the, the end of of the patent life. And, uh, and I, I was, I asked him, you know, all these people are using the horse link. Why, why would you sell it to specialize? And he said, you are the only person who's actually paid me the royalties monthly. Wow. Like you said, you would. And he's like, so yes, there's a lot of people using my design and I'm not getting paid for it and specialized offered. It makes sense for him to sell it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so then we worked out something with, with specialized and um, and it just transferred over and we had to change it from saying horse link to FSR link. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, we we ran with that for for the entirety of the of the life of, of Titus. Did you in those amp days? Did you ever ride that fork, the linkage fork they made? Yeah. What'd in fact, uh, the it, it was okay. Uh, I. I didn't run it. I just ran it to test it because I didn't like it all that much. It Fair wasn't enough. for me. 
Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Not as good as the RS1 at the time. Or whatever was out Whatever, the everything. Yeah. The, the Marzocchi, the match. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a little flimsy. Yeah. Horse like minimal. He he was definitely a minimalist and 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 everything that he did. But man, he said he just the guy's just a genius with ideas. And for those that don't know, Horse is responsible for those truck steps that when you open the door, they go. Yeah, I believe that's his patent. And then the other big one is when you buy a uh, like a pickup truck with a smaller bed and you can put the tailgate down and they have the kind of the tubular thing you can flip out to yeah. kind of keep your cargo in the gate. That's also his his patent. So he's done well for himself. Yeah, I he's think. done okay. <laughs> yeah. He's still around too. Yeah, and he was a he was an original motorcycle de- designer for KTM as well and ATK motorcycles he owned, yeah. uh, I believe. And so he's yeah, he's a well accomplished engineer. Yeah, really smart guy. Okay, let's let's talk about Titus for a few minutes. Uh, I want to talk about trail bikes, but long travel trail bikes. Yeah, because you were, I mean, one of the first to be making bikes with a decent amount of travel that you could yeah. actually pedal around. Um, Quasimodo, Locomoto. Yeah. We had the Quasimodo and the Supermoto. At the the Supermoto was our downhill bike, but the Quasimodo was our long travel, like one one fifty, one sixty yeah. travel all around bike. How were those received at the time? They were received great. I mean, we were not a huge company, but um, that that bike was really popular for us. Yeah. I think of the Racer X. That was our number one. Yeah. The, the Racer X is what Titus is, is known for, but the Quasimodo as well was just kind of a, it was a unique thing and we did do quite a bit of them. Yes. What about Exogrid? I, I, when I see Exogrid, it looks super exotic, like titanium tube, all the stuff is milled away with carbon inside. It doesn't get more exotic than that. Right? Honestly. Especially I mean, back then. Yeah. Even, even looking at it today, I mean, there's better ways to make things, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it definitely doesn't get more exotic. So we, we had, um, we merged Titus in 2001 with a company called Viatech that was, uh, there used to be a brand called Hyzoot in the market and we made all their aluminum rear triangles, helped them with some of their designs. There was Hyzoot carbon bars. They were a division of an aerospace, publicly traded aerospace company. Okay. The aerospace company decided that these consumer products, bike stuff, archery limbs and things were not making any money and they they wanted to divest of it. So an investment group came together. Uh, Titus was part of that that deal and I merged Titus with Viatech to get mm-hmm. these composite technologies. Was that specifically the reason to be able to use this stuff? Uh, yeah, some of the other investors that were coming in um, and what I felt it could potentially do for Titus as well as um, some of these composite technologies. So uh exogrid was not invented yet it wasn't mm-hmm. part of that so we had isogrid which was a thin wall carbon tube um with reinforcement ribs inside so you could actually make the the tube quite a bit thinner and still control some of the flex of the tube but when you make a carbon tube that thin like impact strength on a mountain bike isn't really its best attribute yeah it worked pretty good especially on here in phoenix yeah <laughs> It worked nicely on road bikes, tri bikes, that sort of thing, um, but it was definitely not a good mountain bike technology. 
But when we were co-molding the titanium lugs to the isogrid carbon tubes, and we actually had a problem. Originally, we were making all that stuff in-house, and then we transferred it out, and then we actually brought it back in. But when we transferred it out, we were working with um, Callaway Golf. It's one of the companies we worked with, and they had a factory in Mexico. And we were having a problem where sometimes you'd be riding the bike and you'd hear a little pop, and all of a sudden the carbon tube would no longer be connected to the titanium Oh, shit. Um, Has to be the crazy glue. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you never knew when that was going to happen. In the way, and, and we actually found a big problem in their production process Instead of using the uh, etching material, uh, coating the titanium tube with that, they were grabbing the can that was mold release. Oh, shit. Yeah. Simple fix, at least. Simple fix. But I was terrified of it ever happening to, to a customer out in the, out in the real world and, uh, and really wanted to design a mechanical lock between the two. And because we were using isogrid on road bikes... I came up with the idea, like, let's make it look like a tra- traditional lug, like a Colnago, and let's cut this thing out and have scallops in it. And so I came up with the diamond shape so that when they molded the carbon tube, it would come up through. And not only would we have the chemical bond, but we would also have this mechanical lock that mm-hmm. it just couldn't twist or come out. So we had diamonds top and bottom and on the sides, and um, and it worked fantastic. So I... I, I was like, this could be pretty cool. Like, what if we wanted that impact strength and we just took all the titanium out that you could take out, but still just enough. So if rocks hit it and stuff, it would be good. And we could keep that that strength of the titanium. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we'd start using some pretty big titanium tubes on the mountain bikes, like inch and a three quarter to two inch size down tubes uh, to, to keep the flex down. But then you're starting to approach like steel frame weights because the tubes were so massive. So we wound up laser cutting all those diamonds out. And then we had to send it to like a deburr aerospace shop. And they, they were just rows of people with little pencil dental tools, cleaning up all the burrs on the inside of the titanium, sanding out the inside of the tubes. Then we would mold the carbon tubes, carbon inside the titanium it would push through and be like really ugly. So then we started like pre-cutting the the Titus logos and yeah. all the diamonds. So I don't know, just like stacks of 10 pieces of carbon in each diamond and the Titus logos were all like pre-cut out yeah. and put in. And so those would all mold together and make it look all nice and clean. You'd finish this tube and those titanium tubes drawn or seamed were not super straight. So it's not like you could put the thing on a lathe and just clean it up. Mm-hmm. So they all had to be centerless ground. So we're basically externally budding the titanium tube at that. It, at it that all point. sounds very labor intensive. I think at the time a finished down tube was close to five hundred dollars before we ever mitered it or put it in a frame. How much were those frames back then? Retail? I, I don't. They were expensive for the time. Yeah, but it's hard to say. We we did okay on them, but we definitely made like a better margin on just regular titanium frames yeah, because of all the effort that went into those exogrid down tubes. And when we were doing the road bikes with, uh, uh, eventually it was even the seat stays. So it was top tube, seat tube, down wow. tube, seat stays that were all exogrid. So a lot of work went into it. The bikes were beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Really on a suspension bike, 
what we could do with the down tube for like having vertical compliance and just insane torsional stiffness. So bottom bracket stiffness yeah. could go like way higher than an aluminum bike. But it was just really a precursor to what you could do with full carbon monocoque molding stuff. Yeah. Let's fast forward a bit to probably not a fun time. 2006? Yeah. What happened? I, I read online that you were forced out of Titus. Is that... Is there some truth to that? Uh, that's not really correct. I actually uh, had an option at the end of five years to either buy out if the deal wasn't working out with our merger with Viatech mm -hmm. that somebody could provide an offer and another the other party could counter the offer. Um, and our our in the, really the entire investment group, other than the original. Uh, CEO of Viatech all wanted out of Viatech. It was, it was not a good deal for, for many reasons, but, uh, um, they didn't, he didn't like that offer. Uh, he felt we were undervalued. He provided a alternate offer that we all felt was way too high an offer. Um, I still got offered an employment agreement to, to move forward and continue with Titus, but I kind of saw, the way they were pulling money out of my company that it wouldn't be able to do what it needed to do and survive long term so i took an option to be bought out and and uh and then yeah left the company that i started pretty angry with a chip on yeah. my shoulder and um and immediately started working on fuel new bikes. for the fire fuel, fuel for, for the, the fire, fire eh? so i left uh in at the end of june 2006 and we launched pivot at Interbike in September 2007. Yeah. Was that always going to happen if you left Titus? Like, was it always going to be another bike company for Chris? No, I didn't know if... It, this was a, uh, a th probably a three-week period of mourning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's what I was curious about. Well, I didn't know if I ever wanted to do this again. Yeah. Um, this guy, Josh, I don't remember Josh's last name, but he, he was the founder of MRP. He had started, uh, he had sold MRP um, and then started a motorcycle parts company, uh, Fastway. Okay. And I was racing motorcycles quite heavily, dirt bikes at the time. And I was pretty enamored with that. And I don't know how Josh got a hold of me, but he was getting pretty bored with motorcycles at the time. So he wanted to sell Fastway. So the first thing I did was look at, at Fastway and got the business plan for that. And my friend that was in the motorcycle industry kind of talked me out of it and so I didn't do that. And then uh, I've been known to not eat the healthiest. I'm big, <laughs> big fast food fan. So uh, I, I didn't know that In-N-Out Burger at the time was and still is own, a family-owned company and that they didn't franchise. So my wife and I uh, like tried to get an In-N-Out Burger franchise. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> this was over a three-week period, and one of the the partners, investors, who's my my primary uh, partner today, um, was willing to support me in pretty much anything I wanted to do. But the, the bounce around on the fast food thing—it was a confusing uh, time for Chris. yeah. It was a confusing time. Uh, so there's another chain in Wisconsin called Culver's, um, and, and I'm a big call. I'm a big I've, Culver's fan. Dude, I was in Wisconsin earlier this year. I had never been to a Culver's. Sarah, my girlfriend, yeah. took me to a Culver's 
for some cheese. Holy shit. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I'm a Culver's fan now, so yeah, keep going. That and the frozen custard. So yeah. they, I saw that they were franchising and they had started opening some stores in Texas, so we looked at that as well. And my business partner, Tim's from Illinois and Wisconsin. He's got a place in Wisconsin. And he he was like, basically, what are you thinking? I'm like, I'm thinking that this building in front of this movie theater by our house really needs one of those <laughs> and it would be awesome we could do really well with this he talked you out of it though kind of he's like you just need to take a deep breath for a minute mm-hmm. and uh and you know after a few weeks i was i, I was pretty much back to bikes i mean it was they never really left yeah i was just riding my bike and um and because I didn't have a job, I, one of the companies that a machine shop that I worked with in California that would help handle some of our heat treat stuff and made parts for us, they uh, he actually made a job offer to me to come run his company. Um, they wound up uh, owning fork ups like the fork adapters. If you have a uh, a lefty fork on your bike or for roof racks and stuff, yeah, for roof racks. And so they were painted bright colors. Yep. Yeah. Um, I took that over for a year of, of getting that lined out and designing new fork ups and working with, uh, that's not exciting enough for you, Chris. You need no, to make no, it was actually quite successful. And, uh, I was, I actually said to, to my wife, Cindy, I was like, I don't really want to be known as the fork up guy or the bike rack guy. Yeah. Cause then I actually, we wound up licensing it to Yakima to get the volumes up and, mm-hmm. It was kind of paid on commission, and so I was like, "Yeah, let's let's just take this out of the machine shop and just a few distributors, and you've got a patent on this. It's a big deal. Let's see what we can do with it." And then, inadvertently, Kevin and I, our head engineer here, who worked with me at at, uh, at Titus, we wound up starting to design, working on racks for Yakima. So we had a cool rack design, and then as we were working on the Titus launch stuff and the new bike designs and everything and that kind of just got put put aside yeah you saw them and were like kind of lit a fire under your ass is that what you're no we just yeah i mean it started to like we had chosen manufacturers and we were building prototypes and everything was coming along and it was like fork ups were easy but like designing racks and the back and forth with yakima and yeah. manufacturing sourcing and everything for this stuff was starting to get too much yeah. so we kind of just stopped following up on that project with them and decided yeah we're we're full on how do you start a bike company in 2007 what what, what does that take it was a lot different than starting it in yeah. 1990. Um, That's why I ask. Because when you're when you're young and dumb, you just kind of do what you got to do. And it was, it was far different. If I'm we had, I had a successful bike company, we had I don't know 25 employees. We were profitable at at at, uh, at Titus. And to start Pivot, um, I knew the struggles. I mean, the first years of Titus, I was I was putting on personal credit cards. Actually, not even the first years. Yeah, almost all the way up till the point I merged it there with with Viatech. There was, it, it it was a bootstrapped company. We never like had the financing we needed, and it was everything was step by step. Maybe some of the employee 
um, decisions of like, I couldn't always hire the people I wanted to hire because I couldn't afford the people I wanted to hire. I couldn't have the benefits we wanted to have because of the size of the company. And so, okay, start fresh slate. If you're going to do this successfully, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And so the whole business plan that went along with launching Pivot was far beyond designing a couple of new bikes and things and raising the money and doing everything so that we could launch successfully. And it wound up being pretty good timing um, in general, I would say, but all that funding was in place, all that money was raised, everything we were going to do was all in 2006. Mm-hmm. Launched at Interbike September 2007. Two, three weeks later is when all the banks collapsed and the housing crisis happened globally. And stressful times. It it was and it wasn't. We because we already had the funding, um, mm-hmm. and all of our competitors really pulled back, and, and some of them went through some pretty mm-hmm. tough financial times. Um, and we were starting from nothing. We didn't. We could only go up, mm-hmm. and we did meet all of our goals. Uh, the only hard thing was one of our our main partner at the time was BH Bikes from Spain. So we started BH USA and we started Pivot Cycles. In BHUSA, we handled all the high-end road product development for them out of here. And uh, and then we were also BHUSA um, selling that product. So our sales rep force did both Pivot and BH. In the road bike market, post-Lance, um, actually Lance wasn't post-Lance yet, but it was still a tough, tougher market and then soon to become much tougher. So yeah. with the... With the housing crash and what was to come a couple of years later, that brand was much harder to to grow, and a lot of our efforts went towards that. Um, but pivot from the get go, not everyone who wanted a pivot could have a pivot. So, That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, demand. So we yeah. were able to build the number of bikes that we plan on building, sell the number of bikes that we plan on selling, and meet the goals. For growing the company and being revolutionary a company. concepts, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and that all out went out the window during COVID. Yeah, course. we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So when we talked about Titus, we talked about Horst, and he was very important, obviously. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy who's probably pretty important to pivot. His name's Dave Weigel. Yeah. How did that come about? Uh, when we were looking at what to do for the first for the suspension designs, what we were going to use. Obviously, I built a lot of horse link bikes over the years. We did some single pivot stuff. I did other bikes for other companies. Um, I was enamored with a couple of different things out there, and one of them was the the Maverick. Hmm. Remember the Maverick? Yep. Yep. Um, So that was a floating bottom bracket design, and it didn't always work well, but the idea, the concept behind it of what it could do – we were still using front derailers back then and the, the way it moved, the, the front derailer just simply didn't work on the Maverick. No. Oftentimes the rear shock didn't work on the Maverick. Sometimes the fork didn't work. Sometimes it the was fork a cool didn't fork, work, though. but it was one of the coolest things ever. Yep. Um, so it was a, a genius bike that didn't really get the, the, the full execution that mm-hmm. it could have. Um, and then it was also licensed to uh, Klein, Trek, and that one even kind of 
buried its reputation down a little further. Also, the same type of concept is GTI Drive, and I'd been a, a fan of that since its its early iterations, but just never seemed to like achieve its full potential. And this the whole idea of of having a more rearward wheel travel path and having when you hit something, not having the wheel kind of abruptly stopped and and having it be able to kind of flow th- through things and maintain speed a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That is not a historic trait of Horselink. You've got that pivot right at the rear dropout. Yeah. Shock goes, starts going, and that starts rotating forward almost immediately. So you're like rotating the wheel into the bump. Um, Especially those were low pivot horse links. Yes. All of them back. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Raising those pivots up, raising the horse link up so that the the rotation at the dropout, the, those things hadn't come along yet. Um, and also with properly placed horse links you know sticks would get up in there in the east coast and Mm -hmm. derailers weren't as strong as they are today and there's just a lot of little things that if we could have one piece rear triangle if we could um uh so we could control the stiffness of what's going on if we could have the more rearward wheel travel path um so i was talking pretty heavily to the maverick guys and Mm -hmm. uh also busby who had the has patent on on uh on the iDrive. But you know, VPP was pretty getting pretty popular back then. And yeah. so that was a dual link bike, and then they licensed it to Intense. So there's two dual link bikes, and then Weagles out there winning world championships on iron horses. And um and we we had some designs we were looking at that were dual link that could also achieve those things with a rearward wheel travel path. And and it was more of a decision of like, do we want to push rope uphill? Do we want to convince everybody that this floating bottom bracket design is the bomb and and that this is the future mm-hmm. when everybody else thinks the future is this other thing? Um, so we had some cool stuff that achieved a lot of the similar things as the, our four bar bikes did, but were definitely dual link designs. I thought that maybe we would uh, be crossing into some of Weagle's patents. And so I gave him a call. Um, we had gone to many a Manitou camp together and known each other for many years and uh, and just started talking to him about it. I mean, I was still under a no-compete at this time, so it was kind of had to be under the radar. And I'm like, hey, if I was going to do this and you felt that we were infringing in any way, would you – would you be interested in like licensing us or charging us a fee for what you felt infringed? And he said, absolutely not. No way. Um, uh, he's like, there's no way I'm going to allow anything that would be confusingly similar to DW link into the marketplace. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I've actually really never analyzed DW link. Let's talk about DW link. And, um, and there's, there's a long side story to that, but obviously we wound up working together and we're still working together yeah. today. So it's, uh, it was, it was good. One of the common themes that I've, I've heard a lot from you is obviously you're smart guy capable you've got your hands in a lot of different aspects of this business. But one thing you also sound really good at is working with like the right people. You know, if, if something else is better, you're just going to talk to that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like bring in the right person to make the thing better instead of doing it yourself, which might be harder. Yeah. 
but you know, I mean, people make the world go around and there's, and uh, as we've grown as a company, it's, it's, it's important to find the best people for the job, whatever that job is, and always work with the best partners. We couldn't be where we're at without yeah, that kind of support. And, and yeah, always, always looking towards the best and not just be like, Oh, this is what we do. This is who we are. We want to always want to advance the bike and, and yeah. whatever that may be. And that, yeah, at, the, at that time and still today, uh, yeah, Weagle's a super smart guy and has a lot of awesome ideas. And 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 Kevin and I are both suspension designers as well. So two heads, three heads, better than one. So. Yeah, exactly. We're going to talk about more recent bikes soon. I have one more question about an older bike. There's a Mach 4 sitting in the pivot lobby on yep. the wall. Looks pretty interesting. It looks got some handmade things on there you told me a bit about that bike yeah it's got a rear end from santa cruz not a rear end just the chain stays just the chain stays just the chain stays okay yeah how how did uh, that all happen well when we were looking at where we were going to make pivots uh there was a factory in the u.s anodizing inc sapa is is their parent company name and they made all the original Schwinn homegrowns. They made all the original FSR specialized bikes. Um, back when Asia manufacturing for suspension bikes wasn't a thing, they that's where it was at. They made all the first Santa Cruzes. They made Santa Cruzes, the first VPP Santa Cruzes for yeah. many years. Um, so as that stuff went offshore, uh, I I knew they they had been making dual link bikes and they. We wanted uh, the initial concept was that we were going to both build pivot frames in the U.S. and in and in Asia, and so I wanted to have two manufacturing partners. That didn't ultimately wind up working out, mm-hmm. um, but Sapa Anodizing Inc. was going to be one of those partners, and I needed chainstays that would fit everything else. I could just use tubing and make gussets and yeah. do whatever we needed to do, but th- those particular things clearing chain rings and uh and fitting things and having tapered chain stays they, they needed to be real chain stays and they had boxes of them yeah. so <laughs> send me some <laughs> there you go eh yeah so thank you santa cruz <laughs> <laughs> very helpful yeah very helpful i wonder if they knew that at the time eh not at the time because they weren't ma- making any bikes with them anymore it was long long past so tooling that wasn't being used anymore but i think i told joe graney that at one point when we were on a list we should share some of the same manufacturing facilities and um share car rides and have dinners together and stuff so yeah yeah i think i told him that story a long time ago yeah uh let's let's move forward many many years let's talk about e-bikes i keep hearing i keep reading people keep telling me that e-bike sales are crushing everything else. E-bike sales are more than 50%. E-bike sales are 80% of company sales. E-bike sales are the future. What, you're probably not going to tell me numbers, but rough percentage of your bike sales, does it make up like, does it make up 50% e-bikes? No, no. I mean, it's an important, it's important for us. It, it It's a part of our lineup, but it's, uh, but it's not in the top three or four sellers. I mean, it's on, honestly our trail bikes, our Firebirds, Switchblades, Trail 429s. Those those dominate our sales way over e-bike numbers. Okay. And that 
e-bike numbers are going up. Mm-hmm. They, um, they have to. It's a brand yeah. new category. But um, and they're more expensive. So on the dollar side, eventually they might they might clear fifty percent. But it's not even close to that now. It's just, especially in the U.S., it's a nice part of our our lineup. Yeah. And in Europe, it's more important. Um, but it's actually over there. Bikes like the Firebird are, and Switchblade are, are still dominant yeah. in our lineup. But for other companies that are you know, primarily focused, again, on lower some lower-priced e-bikes and commuter mm-hmm. e-bikes, yeah, I'm sure it's 60, 70, 80% of a lot of, a lot of companies' revenue. But Pivot is, a, is really a high-end core mountain bike brand. It's, it's an elite expensive bike and in an e-bike version it's an even more expensive even bike more expensive. um yeah. and so we're we're not going after the masses and if somebody wants regardless of whether it's an e-bike or other category um it it's got to be something special and we're not we're not just getting getting hundreds of thousands of people buying pivots we're not that size company so mm-hmm. um so yeah it's an important part of what we do but it's not all that we do and it's not all where we put our focus yeah you were uh you were riding some early e-bikes back in the day yeah and you knew right away though that i mean they were probably i think a lot of modern e-bikes are basically tractors to be honest with you but some of those e-bikes back then must have been pretty rough oh they were super crap it was yeah and even early when i like i started to think that maybe we should actually explore this from from a pivot end yeah it was i remember we got a high bike in here an early high bike what motor uh i believe it was probably a a bosch motor at the time seven years ago eight years ago yeah and i mean the the that that, those early bosch motors the had the small front sprocket and Mm -hmm. if they were turned off you, you literally couldn't pedal them down the driveway yeah. Um, and back then e-bikes were really, it's like, let's strap a motor to, to the biggest piece of crap you can, you can <laughs> to save money. And, uh, and cause this motor cost X amount and the whole bike still needs to cost the same as a regular bike. And, yeah. um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty bad. But at the same time, when you pedaled it with that power, you're like, but what if, and being a dirt bike guy yeah. and seeing the evolution of dirt bikes over the years it's like not even what what if but what what will this become and i can see what it'll become and how cool this whole thing could be yeah 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 so you i mean there are definitely some people out there who were resistant but it definitely that doesn't sound like you you knew right away hesitant <laughs> hesitant but not resistant but hopeful. And, then, and then we set up uh we set up pivot germany six seven years ago and when we were first like out there pining for the business and everything and trying to get in dealers by that time in europe most european brands had an e-bike yeah. might not have been a good one but it's like okay so where where's the e-bike in your line do you have an e-bike coming what are you guys planning on doing in e-bikes and if we didn't have something it was literally the complete opposite of the u.s if you have an e-bike, I don't want to talk to you guys. Like, you're the Antichrist. We're, yeah. But, 
over there, quite the opposite. If you don't have an e-bike coming, why would we consider your your brand in our store? So there was there was a strong need from their product pool, their customer base to have something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, our original idea in 2017 was we were only going to sell it in Europe. Yeah. And it was interesting to the surprise at the show for us was, yeah, we were the first and only highest like boutique high end brand, but Rocky mountain also unveiled their, their power play in 2017 at, at that same Eurobike. Yeah. We had one of our best retailers, good friend. He, he, he knows who he is, but, uh, had posted something on Facebook like two days before the Eurobike launch that their shop would never support or carry a brand that that mm-hmm. uh, had an e-bike in their lineup. There's a lot of people eating their hats now. Well, we were number their number one seller in their store, and Rocky Mountain was number two. Yeah, and we both showed an e-bike at Eurobike, and his number three brand uh, was Da Vinci, and they showed two e- e-mountain bikes within the next within six months of of that time. Mm-hmm. But we were all still, I think even Rocky was only Europe at, at the time was the initial plan. But then the, by, by this time specialized was pushing pretty hard in the U S especially on the West coast. Um, like requiring dealers to carry a certain number of, of e-bikes. And so it was actually starting to pop. And so the second we showed that the U S dealers not not all of them, but a good portion of them were really angry in the other direction on why they couldn't have that bike. Mm-hmm. And so we had to do a, a pretty quick about face. And it's it's kind of funny because when you see the one we had hanging up on the wall, it's super bright, like bright blue, neon yellow. And it was really to announce in Europe, we are here with Maximum Pivot Europe. <laughs> Maximum Europe. Yeah. And uh, – and then when we decided to do it to the U.S. for the U.S. dealers, it was like it's all black with like super light gray. Like you can't even hardly see the Pivot logo yeah. on that bike. And it's like, OK, we have one, but like don't look at the brand that close. Mm-hmm. Was there was there any concern on your part about alien alienating uh, customers that I mean – Still to this day, it's a pretty um, divisive subject for North Americans, especially. Yeah. So back then, it was, was a, it was a huge concern, and that's why one we you know we wanted to fulfill the needs for for Europe. Uh, we weren't going to sell it in the U.S. And my other concern in the U.S. was accessibility and getting mountain bike trails closed down. If, yeah. Are we going to be part of the solution? Are we going to be part of the problem? And um. And, you know, at the time, the biggest resistance was not necessarily from park services. Mm-hmm. They they had no no clue really what was coming. They didn't know. Um, it was really the internal mountain bike core, the core riders in the shops and everything that were like, this will wreck our sport. We can't have this. And... And so we wanted to make sure that when we sold it, that we we helped people understand what the three classes of e-bikes were. We helped get the e-bike law passed here in Arizona, worked with the park service. Mm-hmm. We had a hang tag that came with every 
bike uh, and we had a, a, a QR code for trail forks to so you could see where e-bikes were were legal. We tried to do everything possible to advance and make sure that we were not just selling a whole bunch of bikes that are going to be mm-hmm. illegal tomorrow and cause all of the efforts and work that has been done since the 80s to have mountain biking be a, a accepted sport. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, go back to the dark ages and um, and really be like three wheelers or <laughs> dirt bikes in California to some extent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's there's still a lot of work to be done on that. But I'm part of the EMTB like legislative committee with people for bikes, and we're yeah. we're all we're all trying to make sure that it gets done right. Yeah, that's cool to hear. Um, what if somebody was sitting in front of you? some jerk and he said something to you just playing devil's advocate because i know people are going to be thinking this what if he said to you mountain bikes don't have motors oh i'd no. punch him would no, you no. <laughs> oh shit <laughs> cut <laughs> you know i i i i couldn't care less what what anybody does but i do know that some people have that opinion so what's your counter to that or if you even need a counter, you don't need a counter. Don't really need a counter. I mean, it's one, a lot of people, it, it's changed pretty radically. And anybody who gets on one, if they're still resistant, if they're old school, that's fine. If they never want to even try it. Yeah. That's, that's their prerogative. It's totally fine. But if they even take a, a short, real mountain bike ride on it, yeah, n- nobody comes back back with a frown on their they're face they're annoyingly fun i'm always angry yeah <laughs> every time i come back i'm like smiling but i'm like god damn that was fun <laughs> and you know one of our employees here used to always say i want to have all the funs yeah <laughs> like i can still be a, a core mountain biker and i can still ride e-bikes yeah it's exactly cool. and you know we have shops that don't sell gravel and don't sell downhill bikes and early on when we had those explanations well what am i supposed to do with this with this type of you know, product, how am I supposed to talk to our customers about this? It's like, hey, we had some dealers pressuring us to bring this to the U.S. Yeah. They really want this bike. That's great. You don't. Don't That's buy That's great. <laughs> we have like 14 bikes in our line. You have some that you really like? Mm-hmm. Cool. Sell those. Yeah. Be what you want to be. If you have customers who are asking, take care of them. We just want everybody to have a good time and enjoy biking, whatever that means to them. Yeah. And we offer products for that and go have fun. Yeah. So it's really changed though. The amount of people that like were really hardcore about no way, even our initial discussions with how, mm-hmm. how we work with Imba and their, their major concerns about trail closure and that they just don't want to even be, recognize that this e-bike thing if for service or parks ask them about it their stance is no e-bikes and even that 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 was the original stance yeah that's not the stance today we're all working together trails are common ground all this other stuff to make sure that all these user groups are properly accommodated yeah okay um let's let's switch gears from e-bikes to something a little less fun we got to talk about Corona times because it's hard for some businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I found a quote from you (laughs) (laughs) online. It was in an interview. Um, I'm going to read it out. It says, uh, we had to look at our sales every day and run projections of how many days we could keep a full staff on board. And then one month later, we had more orders that month than the rest of 2020 so far. We've observed companies dealing with lead times of 200 to 900 days. Things changed quickly. They did. They changed quickly. Let's let's start at the early days of Corona. That must have been scary. Did you shut down? We didn't shut down. Um, our it was interesting in our state in Arizona here because the rest of the world was was having big problems. I mean, lots of people were dying in New York. Uh, Italy was completely shut down. And that affected us immediately on the business side and that the the places that were most affected, we had distributors, dealers, canceling big orders as we were coming into season. This was March. So just when mountain biking should be popping, all of a sudden nobody can pay their, their bills from stuff they bought during the winter. And yeah, um, we. I, I, I was terrified. It was. It was probably the hardest time I've ever had in my life, business-wise. Of, we've got all these employees. Nobody's willing to pay their bills. People are canceling major orders, but the stuff's all here, ready to go. What What are we going to do? How many days can we keep everybody employed? How many days can we stay in business? Mm-hmm. And thank God. F- from the bicycle industry standpoint, that it wasn't the restaurant industry, and that this lasted less than a month it was like three weeks and then it just completely flipped it Mm -hmm. was just bizarre and we were lucky because we just didn't have that many cases we were still joking like why are they making a big deal about the flu Mm -hmm. and um it it just wasn't a thing in arizona so from an arizona perspective it was like kind of hard to really understand what everybody was freaking out about. Mm-hmm. And even with that, so my purchasing manager at the time, he's like, so with all this going on, you, do we just cancel everything? Everyone's canceling with us. I'm like, no, just take your foot off the gas a little bit. Don't. We're not going to place new huge orders, but we're not going to cancel anything because people kind of tend to freak out about this kind of thing and then- Overreact. And we'll just steady as she goes. But we were taking volunteers for hourly employees that wanted extra time off to take that time off unpaid and just yeah. try to budget down. And yeah, we weren't meeting the daily goal we needed to meet to to keep things afloat. The first week, the second week, we started hitting that goal. By the third week, we were doubling, tripling that goal. And by the end of that week, everybody get back to work. Yeah, because we're not meeting our customers' needs, but by that time everybody's freaking out. I don't want to come back to work. (laughs) (laughs) I like being at home, (laughs) and I might die if I come back to work. Yeah, and and so that was really difficult to manage. And we were also uh, moving into a new building around that time, and so that that you built. We bought a real piece of crap. Yeah, and we had an eighteen-month construction project on it during. Corona. Pre-corona, okay. uh, coming into Corona is when it was finishing. 
Uh, so then we we were dealing with contractors not being able to come in and everything coming yeah. in to 2020. That's like February, March. We were we all wound up only being one month late on the the building getting completed. Yeah. But that was a horrible month. So it yeah. was not only that, but paying rent on and construction loans and all that kind of stuff along with everybody canceling their orders was like, could this get any worse? And then getting everybody back and getting into the new building where we, we could really spread out yeah. was turned out to be pretty good, but it was still like terrifying how to manage it from day to day and, and trying to then flip the orders in the other direction. How much stuff can we get? And, I mean, things did go from 60-day lead time in, in some cases to 900-day lead time, like, overnight. Like, they'd confirm our order that we placed and be like, okay, yeah, you'll get that and you know, when you're 80 years old. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're seeing well, – what I'm hearing now is that a lot of companies, some companies, may have overcompensated from – Late Corona, we saw sales pick back up. People want to be outside, lots of bike sales. Now, all of a sudden, I'm hearing there's too many bikes out there. Can you explain that? Yeah, in certain categories, there is. Uh, we, when, when these manufacturers went to these long lead times, uh, everybody kind of had to like jump in a little harder or a lot harder and like, oh, I need my piece of the pie. And so... We all had to, we didn't know if Shimano or SRAM or any of the suppliers were going to deliver. So we had to add additional suppliers and we had to make commitments and all of those companies changed their policies where normally you could make adjustments within a certain time frame. And now it was like any adjustments, changes, cancellations uh, can't be done within six months, which really changes the crystal ball, as you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> um, and so... Even when things started to kind of return to normal, everyone was stuck for with these six month policies. Yeah, and so unfortunately, the the part that had grown the most that were selling the most bikes were the cheaper family bikes, the sub fifteen hundred dollars, the five hundred dollar bikes, and those were ramping back up as. The Corona boom bike effect mm -hmm. was tapering off, and so it's not so much on the high end that that has really fallen off, but it's that the bike shops have committed all of their money to they had to buy all these bikes, and they they might have three years worth of basic mm -hmm. kids bikes, family bikes, commuter bike inventory, and they don't have as much room as they had or as much cash as they had, so. It's it's taking a little bit. It, it'll be an interesting spring, and it'll take dealers a little bit longer. But there's still just as many things exciting happening in mountain biking, and and yeah, the draw for the high end stuff is there. And all these people who came into mountain biking, it it wasn't just a fad. After three years, you probably have Some 20, 20, but still probably a fifteen to twenty percent bump. And new people that have become hardcore mountain bikers now. Yeah. And now they're, you know, pivots their next bike. Yeah. Yeah. Bike prices. That's a contentious subject. Yes. They seem to have gotten more expensive. 
They have. Um, was that caused by Corona? And do you see a time when prices can go back down or is the toothpaste out of the tube? The toothpaste is a little bit out of the tube. Yeah. Um, I mean, exchange rates are still wonky and that has a huge effect on things from time to time. Um, how, how that, that goes up or down, uh, material costs are just higher now. Yeah. Everything, all the raw materials just cost more. And I don't see that returning to normal. Uh, we might have some, a little bit of reduction on some things due to freight costs and things coming back down to, to more normal, but inflation happened. Yeah. A, a car cost 30% more than it, than it did four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. For relatively the same thing. Yeah. During these times with those higher prices, have you entertained the thought of like a click and collect or a direct sales model that might let you bring some of those prices back down? Uh, no, not in that way. We're, we're really, we have a very strong dealer base across the U S and I mean, there are Salesforce for us and they're the experts and we put a lot of effort and time into training them and making sure that they can provide the service and expertise needed for the customers and they're an important part of the chain. So we want to give customers every way possible that they want to buy a bike. If they don't want to necessarily walk into a bike store and talk to the guy for their purchase, but uh, they'd rather handle the whole purchase online. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll do stuff like that in the future, but it'll all still be to support the retailer, like click yeah. and collect at the bike shop. Um, not to your door. You have to assemble your own e-bike. Um, mm -hmm. That sounds like trouble. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like trouble. And we've seen it out there and the, the, the people rolling bikes into bike shops that they bought online with mm -hmm. a myriad of problems. Um, and uh, bikes are just becoming more high tech and yeah. with some of the stuff coming in the next year or two, which some of it you've been privy to some of it, you haven't Ooh, seen yes. the future yet, but, yeah. um, it, they're complex and it really takes the support of a good retailer. And also I kind of feel like the bike shop is, it's part of the culture. It's part of the people we hang out with, the yeah. cool place to go. It's part of like why you like to bike, not not just buy it online, go pedal in a silo. It's like your, your bike shop is, is your tribe, your crew, your, yeah. uh, everything. And it's, yeah. so that's, that's important to us to maintain that. Yeah. Well, one last Corona related question. The other thing that Corona has made obvious to a lot of people, it looks like is supply chain issues are a real thing when stuff like this happens. They are. Yeah. Um, how has Pivot responded to that challenge? There's even before Corona, there was other things like tariffs and uh, changing laws in the EU on favored country status and things like there's always things going on in the background that might make it more complex to manufacture in one country versus another country. And so we've tried our best to to not just be at one place and, yeah. and, uh, and yeah, it's still difficult with everything going on, but 
yeah, we we don't have just one factory. We we work with a couple of different in in multiple locations and and yeah, it served us pretty well during Corona in that there was places that couldn't deliver us any frames and uh, even though we're we're bringing the exact same process, we were we were making switch blades in in two factories. Yeah. And so when one was down and, and closed down because of a quarantine or an outbreak, the other one was still supplying frames and we were able to to manage well because of that. And I think a lot of companies are also looking at that and spreading out how they're doing things. And yeah, that's just going to be the future of, uh, and trying to get more things local, but we were already a full bike assembler. We, you, you've seen, we, we assemble all our bikes here in the U S we do the same thing in Germany mm-hmm. and we have a, our office and facility in Taiwan. So we have flexibility that a lot of the bigger companies just don't have. So frames made there, they're shipped here, yes. all of, or Germany, all of the bikes. Yep. They're assembled by pivot employees yes. and then shipped out around the world. Other companies, I'm sure there's a, some other companies doing that, but most companies are getting their bikes assembled in Asia and shipping them from there. Is that correct? Yeah. So an assembly factory will uh, get the bill of materials, all the information from the, the bike company, the brand, and and then they'll go out and they'll buy the seat posts, they'll buy the forks, they'll buy the frames. And then they'll assemble it all in a box and then they'll ship it out. And that was very problematic during COVID because with some of these companies having 900 day lead times in these bigger assembly factories, they're, they want to wait for every piece and part to come in and then assemble all the bikes. But with Pivot, if our saddle manufacturer couldn't get us enough saddles, if I could get saddles from a different saddle manufacturer, even if I could only get 50 saddles mm-hmm. or 100 saddles, that's 100 bikes we could get out. We could easily switch that out. We could change the set of brakes and a bomb. But what's an assembly factory with the number of people that they have, it's like not quite as bad as like breaking down an automotive production line, but you just don't start subbing out. Not nearly as flexible. Super unflexible. Yeah. And so... Um, so that really helped us with the ability to to make adjustments where we need to make adjustments so people could get bikes. And there was times when we had every drivetrain part, but we for Shimano, but we didn't have Shimano brakes. Yeah. But we had some Hayes brakes, so we could we could use those. And dealers are good stuff. Dealers would take those. Same thing with SRAM, drivetrains, brakes, other pieces and parts. I mean, we bought we. We were buying rotors from Golfer. Nobody could provide rotors. Golfer makes awesome rotors. We'll use them forever now. Um, question question for you. So if you're subbing that stuff in, so a Golfer rotor costs a lot more than a SRAM rotor or a Hayes rotor. So obviously the price of the bike is going to go up or are you guys absorbing that? We were absorbing a lot of it mm-hmm. because the bomb was already done of what we wanted to sub in. Yeah. Some adjustments... The stuff we couldn't was exchange rate related and freight related. The freight stuff just went up and insane. And then and then when companies just flat out had if Shimano or SRAM or any Fox had price increases, we cannot absorb those price increases. But yeah. stuff like where we had to make a substitution for a short amount of time mm-hmm. or we work with companies like Golfer that we're gonna bring a certain volume and 
can they be competitive? Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, should we be bike dorks for a few minutes before we wrap I'd this podcast up? I'd love to be bike dorks for a few minutes. Yeah. Too much business Too much stuff. business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You showed me some amazing shit yesterday. Some of it I can't talk about yet. Um, but we could talk about it in general terms. Yeah. Your, your prototyping facility. You are machining lugs and aluminum frame components. Yes. You are machining uh, carbon tube molds. Yeah. You are creating your own silicone um, mandrels. mandrels for molding. And you are making your own bikes here with carbon tubes and metal lugs in-house. Yeah. And they are... I've already told you this a thousand times. They're fucking beautiful. Like they, I had goosebumps when I saw this thing. It was amazing. I like we see a lot of mountain bikes, and I don't really. I mean, the last mountain bike that I was like, you know, made me made my heart flutter. Might have been like a an Acto Five or something. <laughs> you know, something really exotic. And when I walked in and I saw those things back there, I was I said, "Holy shit!" Out loud. They're incredible looking. Um, but why are you doing this? We we started with wanting to try and get things closer to production quicker. And the idea was that we were going to do the entire monocoque production layup from the first prototypes, just like we would do in Asia. And that way, we're with ride tuning, layups and stuff, we could be working on that as we're figuring out kinematics and head angles and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that process, although cool, um, making all of that tooling and the, um, in the internal mold pieces, it was taking us months to get to the point of the first prototype. And another goal of ours was to actually shorten the prototype cycle from what we were doing in aluminum and this kind of became an, uh, a really good in-between way. Um, obviously, Atherton Bikes has some cool stuff with the titanium lugs and the carbon tubes. I have a background with all the isogrid and exogrid stuff of being able to make the carbon tubes. Um, and we felt that we could get the layups for the main sections of the tubes, C-tube, top tube, down tube, seat stays, chain stays, um, all to production level to where we could actually drive the same stiffness, the same ride feel and everything. But then with making lugs, we could change geometries. We could move between prototypes quicker. We could be making carbon tubes while we're machining aluminum parts mm -hmm. and they could kind of come to the finish line at the same time. Um, and yeah, we've got that process down now. We're three to four weeks from releasing the drawings. We're riding a, a in-house built, carbon prototype with aluminum lugs and we're continuing to refine like how light we can make those and where we can get them and yeah, it's it's badass it's really cool it looks absolutely ridiculous too i know i'm just gonna keep saying that um you've you've got some crazy machines in there one of them it looks like cuts carbon fiber so yeah we have a carbon fiber like plotter cutting table it basically works like a, a printer uh or something you would cut graphics like vinyl graphics on at just a much higher tech level. So yeah, the, it's got a, a cutter head and we program it in and it'll cut all the patterns and pieces. Yeah. And then I think his name was Josh. 
in there who's laying up the carbon. Josh? Chase. Shit. (laughs) I think his name was Chase. Yeah. (laughs) And they're laying up the carbon. Um, it It just seems like the whole process just seems like such a neat way to do this. Um, it also doesn't seem scalable. Like this is only going to be something for prototype bikes and testing, I assume. It it might be scalable to a a level where we could offer some like really elite small production run type stuff at some point in the future. We're we're continuing to develop the process to get to that, but um, but yeah, right now. I mean, you heard Chase say uh, yeah. the down tube took him three hours to lay up. So it's not. Which is in Asia, there's a, a very talented Asian woman who does eight down tubes in that time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's not not super scalable now anyway. But we'll find efficiencies and it, it, it will continue to take time out of it. And yeah, you, we'll have to wait and see what the what the future brings on that. Yeah. We'll stop there about yeah. that. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Um, testing bikes. I imagine you are riding other brands' bikes all the time. I try to. Yeah. Evaluating them, seeing what you like, what you don't like. Um, I want to wrap this podcast up with probably a hard question. It seems like a hard question for some people, for brands. You got some money to go out and buy a few bikes and they can't be pivots. Chris, what are you thinking about? What do you want? What do you like? You know, I... I, I both kind of like f- some funky stuff where, where somebody's really the artistry is in it and, and they've done something pretty cool and unique. Um, and I like simplicity in, in, in ways as well. And I think obviously I like DW link. So my buddies over at Ivis would have to be in the hunt, but yeah. if I just today had to go out and buy something and I could actually get my hands on it, uh, there's a little, I think, German brand called Last. Oh, yes. Yeah. Super light. Aluminum Just frames. really hand done. Yeah. I, I don't know if they build 10 bikes a year, but it's it's a pretty bicycle. I got to see one in person, uh, another brand product manager, and I just got to pedal up and down a hill in Germany. And it's there's the suspension design is 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 basic. It's horse link or flex yeah. day or I don't even remember at this point, but... It, it was nicely done in the fact that it was all hand built and there's just only a handful of them in the world. It was yeah. kind of cool. So. I, I often see those last frames equipped with intended suspension and the bike dork in me just like, just grins, just smiles. It just, I, I want it. <laughs> yep. You, you know, deep inside that's that the things that Shimano and SRAM and Fox and everything do are, you know, they just have it so dialed. They've yeah. got it down. But this true, true bike dork in you goes like, like if I could just build this thing up with like the most difficult to get, craziest small production stuff, right? And I and I used to do that all all the time, but uh, not as much anymore. But yeah, yeah. Kind of back to the roots. That that is fun to do. It's expensive to do. Doesn't always work out great. Yeah. As you've seen, you've tested enough weird shit over the years that was like, eh, looks great on paper or yeah. in the photos, but doesn't really, isn't up to snuff with, with good production parts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there, Chris. It's been, it's been almost two hours. I'm sure you've got. I thought you said this was going to be a six hour podcast. Well, 
I aim high and I fell <laughs> short. <laughs> we could keep talking. Yeah, but we could. You you might have accounting stuff to do. Maybe you've got welding stuff to do, machining. I don't even know. We've got stuff to do. you got a lot to do. You probably so. have a few things to do too. Exactly. We're going to let you go. Um, thanks, everybody. Put those questions down below and uh, we hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll see you next episode. And thanks for having me here, Chris. This has been really thanks, fun. To thanks see for some, coming and riding. See some neat things. People should keep their eyes peeled. Some yeah. cool stuff coming. For sure. All right. Thanks, Thank Chris. you.